bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, it's been good to reflect on your sovereign nature and your power and your authority. It's been good to reflect this morning, Father, on your attributes, the fact that you are good and righteous and omnipotent and omnipresent, that you are loving and gracious and merciful, and that you are a God who judges the living and the dead and redeems a people for yourself. You are both Savior and judge. And we thank you, O oh God, that we have had the privilege to reflect on that through our songs and through our scripture reading and through the Sunday school classes. And now, as we look uh, once again to your holy word, we ask, O oh God, that you would bless us by the reading and hearing of it as well as the study of it. I ask, Father, that you would be with my words and my lips and my mind, that you would enable me to explain clearly for your people and for our souls, uh, once again, the character of your sovereign, perfect will, that we might be blessed and encouraged and strengthened by your word. For we ask for your grace now, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So I invite you to turn to, back to the book of Acts in um, Acts 22, verse 30, um, through Acts 23, uh, verse 35. So it's a, it's a lengthy passage. However, um, uh, the intention this morning is really most of our time will be spent in verses 1 to 11, and you'll see why, and we'll briefly go through uh, verses 12 uh, to 35. Um, but let me just sort of set it up in terms of how I was thinking about uh, this passage. Um, the theme today, if you have uh, noticed, kind of as we've been going through it, I hate to even call it a theme, but the focus of our worship, right? The, uh, the attribute of God that, that we have kind of been highlighting is his, his sovereignty and his power and his his authority over everything, holy, holy, holy. Uh, we sing immortal, invisible, God only wise. And, and we've been going through the confession of faith and, and looking at those attributes of God. And, and the reason is because um, sometimes we can look at the circumstances of our life and think that everything is working against us. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Um, you, you can be thinking that if my circumstances were different, I could have done more for the Lord. If my circumstances were different, I would have triumphed in the particular challenge that I now find myself in. If my circumstances were different, I could have done so much more in my life and I could have been somebody I'm sure that each of us here have all had those kinds of thoughts to one degree or another. And if you haven't, then you're special. 
but the reality is that we shouldn't be thinking like that as Christians. I mean, we should not be thinking that way. Looking to our present circumstances or looking to the past and trying to evaluate it and, and life from that perspective. At the heart of that kind of doubtful and anxious way of thinking, really at the core of it, is the thought that God is not in control of the situations of our lives. That's at the heart of it. At the heart of that kind of thought of why is this happening to me is the, the base thought that because I can't control it, therefore God is not in control. And that is just abundantly false. That, that's a thought that comes into our minds, not from the life giver, but, but it's a satanic thought that accuses God of not being in control. And we know from God's word that God, unlike us, is not limited by circumstances or events. God is not challenged by circumstances or events. His plans for us are not changed by circumstances or events that surround us. God is the sovereign master over all the circumstances of, of our lives, every single one of them. And he is actually in control of all of it. I mean, nothing happens in life. I mean, this has to sink in for us. Nothing happens in life that God does not permit to happen for our good and his glory. Yes, even those things which we would rather not have to go through, even those things we might even consider bad, God permits them to happen and, and ordains them to happen for our good. In fact, what is the most horrific thing that ever happened in the world to a human being that God not only permitted to happen, but actually came to subject himself to is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more higher injustice and perversion and wickedness that happened in the world than what we as God's creatures did to Christ, the Son of God, when he took on flesh. There, there, there is no more higher level of injustice that ever happened, never. There, there's nothing that could happen in the world that is that unjust. And yet God was over all of it and bringing it about even through the sinfulness of mankind. 
And that should be a great comfort to us as God's children, even when we find ourselves in very difficult circumstances. In fact, um, the third chapter of the London Baptist Confession, which Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll be going through the third chapter, but it talks about God's decrees, and here is how the confession puts it before us, which I think is well said. He said, it says, God hath decreed in himself, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the Creator, nor yet is the liberty of contingency and of second causes taken away but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. See what he's saying? God has decreed everything, not because, and this is the comfort, not because he saw that it would happen, but God, even before these things happened, has decreed these things to take place. That means he is in control, not just when the thing happened, but he's in control long before it ever happens. Do you see the difference? Like, it's, it's an utter control, and God is over all of it. That, that is so foundational to our thinking, and the way that that relates to me as I was thinking about Acts 23 is it reminds me that God wants us to take courage in that God wants us to take courage in that. He wants us to trust him and to move forward in faith and obedience, even in the midst of our trials. And, and the thing is, is Acts chapter 20, verse 30 to 23, 35, this is what the Lord does for the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, he's in a very challenging situation. Um, he's been uh falsely accused, he's been beaten, he's been arrested, he's been chained, he's been imprisoned, he's been condemned by the people in Jerusalem yet again. They say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So this is his situation, and at the end of this account in verse 11, the Lord Jesus is going to come to the Apostle Paul at that time of his need and the Lord is going to stand by him, and he's going to say, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify of me in Rome. So the Lord encourages Paul to take courage, 
and reminds him of his plan and purpose for Paul. That's 1 to 11. Then we're going to see, really amazingly, Luke's going to lay out before us how God, through his hand of providence, actually controls the circumstances of Paul's life to actually carry out that plan and purpose. That's verse 12 to 35. Okay? So, let us... That's a rather long... um, Let us hear God's word. Let's just hear how Luke says it, because this is a very straightforward um, narrative. But we'll start at verse 30. So, so Paul is coming out of, of being uh, about to be flogged. He appeals to his Roman citizenship. The tribune recognizes their sin uh, against him or breaking, I should say, breaking Roman law. And they, and they are afraid. And so the next day, Luke says, verse 30, on the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written... You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. 
They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune missed the young man, dismissed the young man, charging him to tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged nothing with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, That seems like an ordinary narrative passage, but at the heart of it, our God was in control the entire time. From a human perspective, God, Paul is not in a good position to fulfill his plan to go to Rome. You can't move about freely when you are in prison, right? He is bound. He is in prison. He had been chained. He's still a prisoner, and prisoners are not free to travel. And so Luke says that on this next day, 
the Tribune wanted to know why Paul is being accused. He still couldn't figure it out. So the Tribune commands the chief priests and all the council, which is the Sanhedrin, he commands them to come together and keep in mind that this is not a formal gathering of the Sanhedrin, so it's not likely in the normal place where they always met. It's a command by the Tribune to get the Sanhedrin together because he's trying to figure out why is Paul being accused like this? What, why is he on trial? And so as Paul is brought before them, Paul looks at them. He fixes his eye on them. He's, he's not angry, but he fixes his eye on them, trying to convey his sincerity. And he starts by recognizing, once again, their common ancestry as Jews. He, he calls them brothers he, he had no doubt even known some of them because he had, was a Pharisee. He lived among them. He, he served uh, the leadership there. So he probably even knew some of them from his past. And he's saying that he has lived his life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And by saying that, he's not saying that he has never done anything wrong. His past life of persecuting Christians his testimony to them in the last chapter made that clear. But he's saying that in everything he did, he did it with a desire to please God, genuinely. This is how he puts it in Philippians 3, verse 4 to 6. He, more than others, had every reason for confidence in the flesh. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says, I was blameless. And so what he's saying is, in all good conscience, I lived before God. Even when, I was, even when he was a, a, a sinner uh, persecuting Christians, in his conscience, he believed he was obeying God, even though he wasn't. And when he was saved, he was obeying God's call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so all Paul is saying to them is, my conscience was always captive to wanting to obey God, even as a, as a Jew. And his conscience was clear. It, it, it's, 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 it's Paul saying not that he was right in every decision that he made. Your conscience does not make you right. It's just to say he believed what he was doing was obeying God in his life. And we saw last week how God changed his perspective. But this, of course, did not land well on the ears of the council, because when they heard him, they saw him as a blasphemer. They didn't see him as a conscientious Jew. They saw him as a blasphemer, an enemy of Judaism. And so Ananias had those who were standing near Paul strike him on the mouth. Not a, not a slap. I used to get slapped as a kid. <laughs> Not a slap like that. No, they struck him in the mouth when he said that. A hard blow to the mouth. Uh, the same word was used in Acts 21:32 when it says they were beating Paul. And the same word is used of the soldiers at our Lord's crucifixion when Matthew 23, 27 says they beat Jesus. So when they struck Paul, he struck Paul hard. Now, 
you understand a little bit about Ananias, this man is a corrupt priest. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, his servants would go in and take the tithes that were intended for the common priests. They would take those tithes for themselves. And the Talmud, according to one commentary I read, suggests that through a parody of Psalm 24-7, that Ananias would go in and fill his belly with the divine sacrifices. The parody goes like this. This is from the Talmud, Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, that Yohanan ben Narbai, that's likely the corruption of the name Nadbai, which is Nedabias, who we're talking about here. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, that Yohanan ben Nerbai, the disciple of Pinkai, may go in and fill his belly with the divine sacrifices. So this is a corrupt priest. Very wealthy, very powerful, not respecting of God's law or his temple or the people. And he had friends in very high places. He received his position from Herod Chalcis, who was the younger brother to Herod Agrippa I, And it is said that he did not consider it out of the question to use violence and even assassination to further his interests. So this is who we're talking about here. So when Paul is there and he says this, I've lived in a clear conscience before God. Ananias, you could see where his conscience maybe said, strike that man. And he did. And so Paul's response is actually quite fitting. Even though Paul says he didn't recognize Ananias when he made the comment, that's probably because he was gone for 20 years preaching the gospel, didn't know the high priest intimately. Um, It's also not a formal setting. It's It's a meeting. He's probably not wearing his normal attire. Whatever the reason... Paul didn't recognize Ananias as being the high priest, but his remark was actually spot on. Paul responds to Ananias, who was sitting in judgment on him, accusing him of violating the law, and he himself violates the law by having Paul struck without trial. And so Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. What does he mean by that? Turn, uh, well, I'll read from Ezekiel 13, verse 10 to 16. There's, there's two things that came to my mind as I looked at this. One was this Ezekiel passage, but the other is the, the passage Uh, with our Lord when he's talking to the Pharisees. I want to give you an idea of what Paul is saying here. Ezekiel is, is called to rebuke the false prophets of Israel, to pronounce a woe upon them because they've not built up a strong wall of truth or protection for Israel against the enemies. 
The Lord says he's against them. And then in verse 10, he, he gives the reason why. About these false prophets, verse 10, Ezekiel 13, he says, They have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. In other words, if if the application and reference that I think Paul is making here is correct, he is saying to Ananias by calling him a whitewashed wall, he is, he is saying, underneath your hypocrisy of being a law-abiding priest, your pride in striking me, you will one day fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before a fall. Ananias looked so good on the outside, and he claimed on the outside to obey God's law, and he smeared himself with all this whitewash to cover it up, as these false prophets were doing in Israel. And Paul says, you whitewashed wall, God is going to strike you. Hypocrisy. Same thing Jesus said about the whitewashed tomb of the Pharisees. He says, you are like a whitewashed tomb, morally bankrupt on the inside, but outside they looked so clean and so good and so pure but inside, he said, you are full of dead man's bones. And so Paul says this, covering it up, him covering Ananias is this whitewash, and he rebukes him. That's a harsh rebuke. But Paul doesn't realize that this is the high priest because in Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. God's law says not to speak evil against one of your rulers. And so they're quick to call Paul out on this. And they say, how dare you speak against your ruler, one of Ananias, the high priest. And, and Paul says, 
he says, would you revile high priests? And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so Paul recognized the fact that he broke the law. Meanwhile, Ananias and his cohorts are just whitewashed walls that really don't care about breaking God's law. And so that is like a picture of Paul's sensitivity to God's law, which they're accusing him of violating. Paul is innocent of the charges leveled against him. But the real reason then he's being accused by these men has nothing to do with Paul at all. And so Paul here, he sees this situation and He's not trying to rescue himself or create some kind of diversion, but recognizing that there's Pharisees and Sadducees among the Sanhedrin and the tribune is there, Paul sees this as an opportunity really to get to the heart of the real reason why he's being accused. And at the heart of why Paul is being accused, he stands up and he says, brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. You see, Paul realizes that he's innocent of the charges leveled against him, but the real reason that he's being accused by these men is because he's bearing witness to the fact that in the resurrection of Jesus, there is the authentic hope of Israel. In Jesus, that hope was realized and so what happens when the truth comes out, the tribune is there and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there and the whole Sanhedrin, and Paul says, listen, let's cut through all of this and let's get to the heart of it. And the heart of it is, is they are rejecting me because I preach the resurrection of Jesus as a hope for Israel. And so what happens in the midst of that? the Sadducees and the Pharisees begin to fight. That really is the epitome of unbelief. That's the epitome of unbelief. Here you have one man speaking the truth. Jesus is risen. He's alive. I saw him. He came to me. He talked with me. He's alive, and he's risen, and all who believe in him will have eternal life. And then you have the whole element of unbelief that says, I don't believe that truth. What happens in the midst of unbelief? You start to realize the separation here. Satan's house is a house marked by division. Satan's house will crumble. It is divided. A house cannot stand when it's divided against itself. And if you look at verses 7 to 10, it's amazing how their response is evidence of what Paul is saying. This is the issue. And so they start arguing over it. And look what it says in verses 7 to 10. Their unbelief is marked by dissension. Their unbelief is marked by division. Their unbelief is marked by 
great clamor. Their unbelief is marked by sharp arguments. Their unbelief is marked by violence. All between themselves, they couldn't even agree on what they were accusing Paul of. And Paul comes out and says the one thing that they couldn't stand to hear, which is Jesus Christ is risen and he is the hope of Israel. And automatically, they begin arguing among themselves. That's how I see the world. I see the world like that. There is one God and there is one truth and it's in Jesus Christ, and he is died, crucified, buried, risen, and everything else that happens outside of that is just a bunch of unbelievers clamoring and arguing and creating divisions and turmoil. That's it. Those are the two groups in life. You have a people of God that believe the truth, believe in the resurrection and the hope of Israel in Jesus, part of God's kingdom, and you have everyone else. And everyone else is marked by confusion and chaos. See, for the Christian, Francis Schaeffer once, he was a philosopher, he, he spoke of what was happening in our society. And he said what was happening in our society, if you think about the way you view the world, you can look at the world, uh, think of a two-story house. And on the top story, we have faith. And on the second story, we have reason, the material world. This is how the world thinks. And they think that faith belongs on the first story and it has no relationship to the second. To the second story has no relationship to the first story. So if you want to be a Christian and believe in something spiritual, just hang up in the first story. And if you want to spend life down on earth, spend time down, um, hang up on the second story. If you want to spend time on earth, stay on the first story. Faith, reason, material world, two-story house. Our society separates them. But Paul, when you have the truth of the gospel, because that's what the Sadducees wanted to do. They didn't believe in the spiritual, right? They only believed in the physical. And so when they hear Paul and the hope of the resurrection, you're being presented a house that has no floor. It's one house with faith and reason, truth and hope, physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection, it's all tied into Christ. That's the Christian worldview. Does that make sense? We, we don't separate our thinking of faith on top, separated by a floor, and this world on the bottom. That is not the way that the truth is. When we live in God's world, we live in his world in such a way that the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ makes it one whole unit of life and resurrection and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ as risen Lord and Savior reject that element. They, they reject the fact that there is a spiritual truth that Christ unites us to. But he, he does. And so dissension, division, great clamor, arguments, violence. 
a divided house. That's why they're accusing Paul, because they reject Jesus Christ as the only hope. And so, at this point, that following night, this risen Lord Jesus, our Savior, comes by Paul, and he wants to encourage him in the midst of this difficult time. And he wants to show Paul, Paul, you can believe and trust me. I am your true protector. I am the one who is in control. Like he told Abraham in Genesis 15.1, when Abraham's discouraged about not having an offspring, God comes to Abraham and says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be great. So Jesus comes to Paul, our risen Savior, at this point in his life. He says, take courage. Take courage, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus Christ is in control. Paul can be confident to testify to the facts of Jesus because the Lord Jesus says, Paul, I will bring you safely to Rome. Do you see how it's a promise? Take courage, Paul. You, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, my resurrection, my reign, my kingdom, so you must testify also in Rome. In other words, Jesus is saying, here is my plan, here is my promise, Paul, you will get to Rome. And that's where the next, really quickly, the next section comes out. Because here... Luke tells us that the next morning, in contrast to the plan and promise of God, you'll notice in verse 12 what happens. More than 40 Jews, with the approval of the chief priests and the elders, they made their own plan and promise. Do you notice that? It says in verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and the elders, and they brought it before them. And so here you've got Jesus saying, Paul, take courage. The risen Lord says you're going to go to Rome. And here you've got 40 Jewish people with the support of the elders and the chief priests saying, no, Paul will not go to Rome. Paul will be killed in Jerusalem. And we are so confident that Paul will be killed in Jerusalem that we are taking an oath that this will be done and we will not eat or drink again until Paul is dead. Two contrasting plots and plans here. You, you've, got, you've got all of these men, all of these humanity, this humanity and all of this power and authority up against the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forty terrorists want to kill Paul. But Jesus is on 
Paul's side. And how does, how does God work this out? Well, in the midst of their plan, God's hand of providence brings Paul's nephew who hears about their plan. And he conveys it to, to, to Paul. This is no accident or coincidence. This was the Lord's doing. Paul's nephew is there at the right place at the right time, and it, because it was his nephew who heard, that gave his nephew an ability to go in and to access Paul while in prison to speak to him. And he relayed that information to Paul, which he might not otherwise have heard. And so the tribune is informed by their plan by Paul's nephew. The tribune believes him, which is not surprising, considering what he had saw happen earlier, and it set up, and he sets it up to have Paul delivered to Caesarea that night. Now, I just love this, how God does this, because we're told that not only does God lead Paul safely to Caesarea, but he leads him with 12 times the protection over the 40 terrorists who wanted to kill him. He gives him 200 soldiers protecting him. He gives Paul 70 horsemen. He gives Paul 200 spearmen. And they give Paul a horse to ride on so that he can go to Caesarea safely. God even uses these flawed Roman soldier agents agents to do his bidding, and he brings Paul one step closer to Rome where he wants him to preach the gospel. He goes 65 miles to Caesarea in order to deliver him from the hands of these enemies. Is God not sovereign over everything? It is just absolutely incredible. He, he, he brings it to light, and not only does he take Paul out of their hands, these 40 terrorists, but he brings him on horseback with an army to Caesarea. And then you know where he has him stay? In Herod's Praetorium, not even in a prison. He, he goes there to be held until the next trial. The Lord is carrying out his plan and purpose for Paul the entire way through. Comfortable trip, protection, care. God cares for Paul. And so we're going to close with this, okay? This, this basic narrative, and that's really what it, most of this is, is just a general narrative of what happened. I think we need to remember to take courage that no matter what we find ourselves in, the Lord may, is not going to appear to you visibly like he did to Paul and the other apostles when he showed himself to them. But what has he given us? He's given us the promise of his word. And he has reminded us of his plan to deliver us from his coming judgment and to bring us victoriously into his heavenly kingdom. Like Paul, we should be able to say that if we suffer in this life, we are suffering because we have a hope in the resurrection of the dead through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a hope laid up for us in heaven. 
John, in 1 John 3, 2, says, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Peter says in 1 Peter 20, verse 21, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Like Abraham, we need not fear for our reward is great in him. Like Job, we can say, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom shall I fear, beloved? No one. My eyes shall behold and not another. And like Joseph, at the end of his lifelong trial, he goes from slavery in Egypt to second in command in Egypt, we can say what was meant for evil against us, God meant for good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing and for your word. We thank you for the truth that Luke has recorded here for us by the Spirit to convey to us that in the midst of Paul's most darkest trials and his imprisonment and his beatings and, and a plot to really even kill him on earth because he proclaimed Jesus, in the midst of all of this, Lord Jesus, we know that you are risen and you came alongside him to encourage him and comfort him and to remind him that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the sovereign creator over everything, that there is nothing that happens in this life that you are not completely in control of, and that includes our very own lives. We know, Lord Jesus, even though we don't always act like it, we know, Lord Jesus, in our hearts that you have given us that you're the one who is in control. We just ask that you would help us to remember that that we would be humble to receive whatever suffering or trials that come before us as being from your hand. To remember that you have loved us to such an extent that you gave your own life as a sacrifice for us so that we might live. We know that you are risen, that you are reigning, that you are ruling, and we rejoice in that. And so we... We ask for your forgiveness where we have doubted you and where we have uh, perhaps not embraced that truth deeply enough. And we ask that you would implant it deep into our hearts that we would take courage. And we do. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's...
Let's respond in um, a closing hymn, which is uh, 58, and 58 is, uh, I, th I think, fitting, uh, because he leadeth me, O blessed thought. It's a reminder to each of us that as he led Paul, as he led all his saints, uh, he is leading us, beloved, and he will lead us all the way into the pearly gates into his kingdom, and we know it's true because he said it is. So let's stand and sing hymn 58. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comforts fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's flowers bloom, by water still or troubled sea, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur, nor repine. Content whatever lot I see, since tis thy hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory's won, in I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he Amen. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him of creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.